Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you answer that prayer. We're confident that our confession of you receives a response. You have promised to be near your people. In fact, you've promised to dwell with your people. So we ask that um, our hearts would align with our words that we just sang, that we would confess, we'd see with clear eyes and confess our great need of you, and that we would know the nearness of your presence even now. Speak to us through your word this morning, encourage our hearts, challenge us, build us up, and in just a few moments, send us back into a world that also is in desperate need of you. So help us this morning as we go to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. Grab your Bibles, turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. We have come to the end of this study in the minor prophets of Habakkuk and Zephaniah. This is week seven. Um, we spent uh, the first week kind of unpacking the, the whole thing across two, two books. We spent three weeks in the book of Habakkuk. We spent three weeks now, counting today, in the book of Zephaniah. We've titled this series, Revival in the Ruin. And uh, a special thank you to Marissa Jensen for the graphics we're using for this. You've seen them up on the web and on our slides. And uh, so, Marissa, thank you for using your gifts. Probably talking to you if you're watching. Uh, thank you for using your gifts to serve us in this way. Uh, this idea of revival in the ruin uh, comes from the picture of what's happening at this time in Judah. They're on the brink. Their culture is in decay. Faithfulness to God's clear commands from God's people is in decline. And the nations around them are just waiting, lying in wait to snatch up what is left when Judah inevitably falls. They seem to be on this slow march to destruction. And in the midst of this chaos, two faithful prophets are calling out to God for help. They're asking for understanding. They're asking God, what would you have from us? What would you have for us? Now, these two prophets, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, likely remember how God's people forgot God's covenant promises. They stayed too long in the land of Egypt, ultimately becoming enslaved. They also likely remembered how God rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh, how God brought them out, promising to return them to the land that He had promised. I'm sure that Habakkuk and Zephaniah also remembered that because when they got to this land that God had promised, because God's people feared man more than they feared God, they didn't go in. They wandered around in the wilderness for a generation because they failed to trust the Lord. And so even that, while God was faithful to provide for them in the wilderness and to lead them ultimately back they probably remembered. They probably remembered, because it wasn't that long ago, they watched the northern kingdom, the kingdom of, of, of God's people of Israel had been split into Israel to the north, Judah to the south. They had recently, in historical terms, watched the northern kingdom fall. The Assyrians came in and wiped them out. 
And so there's likely this sense of inevitability in the minds of God's people and in the minds of these prophets. That's where we're at here in Zephaniah. Ruin seems clear and present. So that part's a little easier to to get your brain around. Yes, this all looks like a giant mess. So where do we come up with this idea of revival? We talked about it a little bit last week. You see, every time, every time God's people were taken into exile, every instance when God disciplined His people, every time there was built in a promise of redemption, and every time that discipline served a dual purpose. One of those purposes was to deal with sin and wickedness and evil. We've talked about that at length in this series. In fact, last week we saw God's discipline deal with evil in all four directions, east, west, south, and north. See, God doesn't brush off sin. He doesn't just pretend injustice doesn't happen. He deals with it, and it's good that He deals with it. But discipline isn't only for punishment. Discipline, biblically, is designed for growth. More specifically, let me say it this way, the fire of God's discipline comes not only to burn up and consume the wicked, but also to purify and refine His own people. There's a promise and a purpose in God's discipline for the good of His people and a reminder of the promised glory to come. So, we're not living in Judah at the end of the 600s B.C., but I think we can feel at least a little bit of what it's like to live in a bit of ruin, can't we? Our world collectively has been turned on its head. It's hard to know which end is up. What actually is normal anymore? And this isn't just on a global scale in 2020 although it seems like it is. But each of us, too, in our own individual lives, experience this kind of upside down, this kind of ruin. The relationship that seems irreparable, the trial that just seems beyond our ability to handle, the loss that is just too deep, right? It's hard for us. It's hard for us to have hope in the midst of ruin. That's reality. But these faithful prophets are reminding us that in the midst of our ruin, the Lord Himself, the God of the universe, is near to us. He is with us. And His purpose is to revive us. And He has promised that He will be faithful to ultimately restore us. He will ultimately bring us all the way home. Let me say that again. Hope in the midst of ruin is hard. Full stop. But God's Word is beckoning us to see that God is with us. His purpose is for our good. And He will be faithful to bring us all the way home. Let's read our text for today. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Um, uh, You can read along in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, It'll be on the screen as well. Excuse me. Chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will... Change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. 
For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word for us today that cannot and does not fail. As I said when we started, hope is hard to come by. But I pray we're finding here in God's Word this reminder that God is with us, that His purpose is to revive us, and He will be faithful to carry us through. So here are the two anchors that, uh, of hope for, for me as I'm reading this text in the midst of hardship. Here are the, the two anchors of hope I find in this text. Uh, hope number one, anchor number one, that the purpose of the Lord's discipline is always twofold to punish sin, and to purify His people. We see that in verses 9 through 13. And the second one is this, that our God rejoices in and over His people. Verses 14 to the the end, verse 20. So let's look at the first of these two hopes, that the discipline of the Lord is twofold. It is to punish sin and to purify. Look at verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. The phrase we're given here is pure speech. And I think the picture here isn't so much one of four-letter words, bad words, but one of renewal. Added to that, look at uh, verse 13, the ability to serve the Lord in one accord. That, That speaks of unity. And togetherness, they shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found any in their mouth a deceitful tongue. So there's no falsehood, there's no lying, there's no deceit anymore. Instead, they shall be of one voice, and it will be pure and holy and honorable together. The voice of God's people in God's redemption is marked by purity and unity. Now now remember... If you were with us last week, if you want to go back and read, Zephaniah is a quick read, what God just said to the people through Zephaniah. Verse 8, he said, For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, 
all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. That's where we just left, verse 8. And then in verse 9 we get, and here's what I'm doing with my people. I will purify their speech. See, the fire of, that's the picture here Zephaniah uses as fire. And this fire of the Lord's righteous judgment will do two things. He said, I will consume, I will wipe out all wickedness from the earth. And when his fire comes, he said, and I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. We've talked about this already, but we're going to talk about it again. The fire of the Lord, His justice, His discipline. It's not random. It's not indiscriminate. It is purposeful. And that's what Zephaniah is talking about here. God's judgment and justice is like a fire. And fire does two things. It burns up things that burns and it purifies things that do not. So you put wood in the fire and what happens? It burns. We have a fireplace at our house and thanks to my good friend Andy, we have our own firewood guy. He was Andy's firewood guy, and now he's my firewood guy too. Andy, if you're watching, thank you. We love that guy. Right? He brings nice split and dried hardwood from somewhere random in the area. And he brings it on a pickup and loads it in my garage. And I pay him money. It's awesome. Right? If you have a fireplace, you need to get yourself a firewood guy. And we love it because we put wood in there, and guess what? It burns. That might seem like a no-brainer, but we're talking about fire here. It's warm. It heats up the house. It provides for us not just a tangible benefit of, you know, lowering our heating bill because the family room is, like, sweaty hot, but beyond that, we gather there. It does what it's supposed to do, right? The wood burns up, leaving behind the warmth, our time together, and a pile of ash. It does what it's supposed to do. The fire burns up what it intends to burn up. In this case, in Zephaniah's case, the fire comes and it intends to burn up, to consume wickedness, evil, injustice, sin. Right? Now, if you put a piece of silver or gold in the fire, what happens? I mean, with enough heat, you can burn it. But more often than not, the purpose of heat on something like gold or silver is not to consume it, but to refine it. The the heat melts down the metal. And what happens in the process is the impurities in the metal rise to the surface. And they can be scraped right off the top. So at the end of the refining process, after this, this metal, precious metal has been tested by fire, what you have at the end is a more pure piece of metal. It removes the impurities that are deep within so that at the end you, you have something better. This is the dual purpose of God's judgment we see here in Zephaniah. For those happy in their rebellion, the fire consumes. But for those humble in their repentance, the fire refines. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun 
that melts wax, hardens clay. The purpose of the discipline of the Lord is to purify us. And that is good news. Because when we feel like we're in the fire, our first question is, God, what are you doing? Is this going to consume me? Or in your sovereignty, are you doing something that I can't see? Look at what else fire produces. Verse 11, the rebellion and pride and haughtiness. What a great word, haughty. It's a word meaning arrogant, stuck up, thinking you're better than others, right? All of us, all of this that once marked us, marked God's people, will be refined out of us, praise the Lord, and removed. What will be left, verse 12, is a people who are humble. They will seek refuge, not in themselves, but look where they seek refuge, verse 12, in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 13 it says, and they shall lie down, they shall graze and lie down, excuse me, and none shall make them afraid. This is the first great hope for us, the reminder that not only will God always right wrongs, but that when His fire comes, it's not only to remove sin, but it is to purify and refine His people. That's the first great hope that I have, is that God's discipline, His fire, if you will, has a dual purpose. The second great hope for us is this. It's the reminder that God loves and rejoices in and rejoices over His people. We see this in verses 14 through 20. This section starts with this. After this talk of purification, verse 14 commands, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. It's pretty significant commands in verse 14. Why? Why would we do this? Why would we sing and shout and exult? Well, we're given a couple of reasons. Reason number one for rejoicing, for shouting. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Hear this. God's people no longer stand condemned. This is an amazing gospel picture here in Zephaniah. The Lord has taken away, Zephaniah says, the judgments against you. Two things are happening. One, there are judgments against you. And two, the Lord has removed them. This sounds a little bit like Romans chapter 8 to me. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has now set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The punishment that we deserved has been dealt with, and in this case, covered by another. Our guilt has been taken away. Our enemy has been defeated. Probably the most popular Scripture that anyone might know across the globe For God loved the world in this way, that He sent His one and only Son. To do what? To die to redeem His people. 
This is reason number one for rejoicing. Your guilt has been taken away. Maybe, this, maybe in this series, this is what you need to hear. That the refining work of the Lord is reminding you that in Christ Jesus, your guilt has been taken away and your enemies have been defeated. That's reason number one for rejoicing. Reason number two for rejoicing that I find here in the second half of this text is that the king himself dwells in the midst of his people. Look at verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He says you shall never again fear evil. This isn't just a a pause in the pain. This isn't just a reprieve in the ruin. He is talking about the end of everything wrong. Remember, Zephaniah is looking down the corridor of time, and he's pointing at that day. Now, from his perspective, he doesn't know exactly when that's going to happen. And when we look back, down the corridor of time. We see, yes, something happened in Judah, and Babylon did come in and destroy them. But Zephaniah couldn't see the redemption that was coming in Christ Jesus. And beyond that, he couldn't see what was happening in the glorious return of Christ either. But make no mistake, Zephaniah is speaking of that day when everything wrong will come undone. To quote C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite sections of Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he says this, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes inside. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. He was, I should pronounce it, again. Then it rhymes with mane. But do you see the picture there? He's looking at that day. From that day and then through eternity, there shall be no fear of evil again because it has been ultimately defeated. This idea of the Lord being in their midst, in our midst, with and near His people, among His people, as echoed in verse 17, happens a second time. The Lord your God is in your midst. And this verse, uh, Zephaniah 3, verse 17, for me personally, is one of my most cherished pieces of Scripture. I don't know, I've said this before, I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites, but this passage for me is one that, by God's grace, is one of the first passages of Scripture I ever really like studied or memorized. And it has been um, kind of written here. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. He's in our midst. He's mighty to save that He would quiet me with His love, that He would exalt over me, that He would rejoice over me with singing. Look at the components of Zephaniah 3.17 for a second. The Lord is in your midst. Here's what that means. He is the mighty Savior. He is the one who will defeat your enemies. He is the one who is strong when you are weak. He is the mighty one who cannot just save, but will save, Zephaniah says. The mighty one who will save. The Lord is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Think about that for a second. The Lord himself, the sovereign 
creator and king of the universe, takes joy in his people. He delights in his people. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will quiet you by his love. Another way to understand this wording in this verse is that the Lord himself is content in his love for his people. It's a quiet and content and quieting love. Without making too much of this, hear me, the Lord's love for his people is not only broad, stretching beyond the rivers of Cush, as the text says, which we looked at last week as this region to the south. Not only does it, does it spread out, but it is deep and it is abiding. The Lord is content in his love for his people. And finally, the Lord is with you. He will exult over you with loud singing. Have you ever thought just about the, the picture of God singing? And, and not only just singing, but singing over his people. Now, now, God is not like us in the sense that he, in the way that he exists and functions. He doesn't have a mouth per se or a larynx per se in the way that we would understand it. Uh, God has revealed himself in this way, though, to help us. We're the ones who need help here. And the picture we're given is that God is joyfully and exuberantly singing over his people. So like we're, we're made in God's image and likeness. We're fashioned, we bear his imprint, right? So all of our actions and emotions are reflections or shadows of what God is like. So this is how we conceive of something inconceivable. Like, we rejoice over things that bring us joy, right? A child is born, we celebrate. A, 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 per, a proposal is made, we celebrate. A gift is given, we rejoice. Because the, the overflow of gratitude and happiness and love in our hearts spills out of our mouths in rejoicing. We give shouts of, woo, right? And this is how God's love for His people is expressed, he takes joy in them. He rejoices over them. He sings over them. There is a fullness and a completeness to this love described. It is bigger and more encompassing than we could possibly comprehend. And we sang the song last week, and I think we're singing it again today. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It's, it's, it goes beyond the highest star, and yet it reaches deeper still. This is the picture of God's love for His children, and it is indeed cause for much rejoicing. Now, you might be asking, like me, how can this be? Didn't we just read for like all the rest of this series of about how broken and how selfish and how sinful even Judah had become? How can God rejoice over this? Maybe I'm the only one who feels that way. I doubt it. Because the Lord doesn't rejoice over His people in their sin. In His mercy, He is faithful, just as He promised to 
remove their sin, to remove their judgments, to deal with it and to restore them. Remember verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. If you haven't seen it to this point, here it is, plain as day, the gospel in the book of Zephaniah. This is a picture of complete redemption. Hebrews chapter 9 echoes this picture. Starting in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. This is speaking of the Old Testament sacrifice where the priest would spill the blood of a goat or a calf, in order to make atonement for the people that would last a season. In this case, the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, he didn't enter through the temporary means of the blood of a goat, but he spilled his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ is the fulfillment of the hope in Zephaniah chapter 3. Your shame, your guilt, your sin will be taken away and you will be pure, not just temporarily, but forever. The writer of Hebrews continues... Chapter 10, verse 14, he says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If that's not a clear picture of the already and not yet work of the Holy Spirit, I don't know what is. He has perfected, past tense complete, for all time those who are being, present tense reality, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. The writer of Hebrews now is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, reminding them, this is the covenant that I have made, that I have kept. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Sound familiar? Sound a little like Zephaniah chapter 3? And then he goes on and says in Hebrews 10, 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. When Christ hung on the cross and cried out, it is finished, he meant it. Sin was dealt with. This is cause for much rejoicing. A good friend of mine, brother in Christ, taught me something a number of years ago. I was just plugging away in ministry and yet weary, wrestling with my identity in Christ, feelings of disappointment, discontentment, unsure of not only my purpose, but really questioning God's love for me. I felt stuck. Maybe you felt something similar. And this brother looked at me in my eyes and said, Jake, you are hidden in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? You are hidden in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you, Colossians. Therefore, 
And he looked me square in the eyes and he said, Jake, therefore, when the Father looks at you, when he looks at you, he is pleased. Wrecked me. Absolutely wrecked me. When he looks at me, he calls me son. He is pleased. To use Zephaniah's words, the Lord delights in you. He rejoices over you. Now, in this is no excuse for sin and laziness. I mean, keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10 and the commands to live in light of the redemption of Jesus. But everything is now different. This is the gospel of grace. Everything changes now for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the already and the not yet. Look at verse 19, and we'll close. Verse 19, he says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time... I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Again, the words we often sing, the refrain to the song, amazing love, how rich and pure, how measureless, how strong. From age to age, God's love endures, and it will forever be the song of our lips. God has already, in Christ Jesus, dealt with sin. He's dealt with shame and our enemy, Satan, who works to steal, kill, and destroy. He's done it. And he has secured for us, for his people, for those whom he loves, an eternal kingdom. Not only just do we just get to hang out as peasants in the kingdom, Zephaniah is saying we actually share in the glory of the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of the king, the one king who will reign forever and ever. Our sure hope now is the sufficiency of Christ's finished work. His blood washes us clean washes us pure from all of our sin and our shame already. We do not stand condemned in Christ Jesus any longer. And our sure hope to come is in the promise of the final wiping clean of the remnants of sin and evil that remain and a welcome into the glorious city of God to be with Him and enjoy Him forever. See, I think I get it. When we're in the thick of it, Hope is really hard. Hope is hard. But here's the anchor, that God is with us. And so if that's true, then we are never alone. That God is at work in us. That the Holy Spirit is is actually applying the finished work of Christ to our lives as we sit here. And not only that, He is working in power and full of mercy to heal the places in us that are broken, to purify the places in us that need to be purified, to revive us. And our God is faithful. 
He has promised not only to save us, not only to wash us clean, not only to make us new, but to bring us all the way home. That he who began this good work will be faithful to bring it to completion. This is our hope in the midst of ruin. May we see this promise of God for us and long for it, pray for it, embrace this work of the Spirit's revival in our hearts and among us as a church. For God's glory, for our joy. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the mercy on display in sending your son Jesus to die for us. And not just to die, but to rise again. And not just to rise again, but to give us your very own spirit to live and indwell us. Father, we confess we are weak. We are frail. We are prone to confusion and and fear. So we ask that you would show your mercy to your people. Remind us of your nearness to us. Help us to see. Would you give us the grace, just eyes to to get a glimpse of your kindness, your work in and among us. We thank you for giving us a community of brothers and sisters to remind us of these things. Father, would you stir in us a hunger for your word? Show us our need and show us your supply. Help us to be confident that in our weakness you are strong. Would you stir our hearts that it's still our need of purification, places where there's crustiness on my heart, things that need to be rooted out. I, I pray you do that in us. That you continue to refine your people. Thank you for the hope that you will bring us all the way to completion. We love you. Thank you for your overwhelming love for us in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.